Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, today's speaker is uh, Brian Cornforth, Fire Chief and Director of Emergency Planning. He's been in this position since uh, June 2002 and previously was the Fire Chief of Airdrie, serving terms as Deputy Chief in both Coaldale and Jasper. Um, last year's massive grass fire came within a whisker of causing life-threatening and damp, uh, property-damaging conditions in West Lethbridge. Only, only the effort by emergency response teams and some luck prevented, the da- prevented a serious disaster. Lethbridge and area has a, an emergency response plan specific to local conditions and is also included in a provincial plan dealing with larger emergencies. But for these plans to be successful, public cooperation with officials are paramount and communication through media, including social media, is very important. Um, I'll invite Mr. Cornforth up to speak about this and... uh Good afternoon and thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for the introduction and uh, as mentioned, I I hail from a few places across Alberta, but I've never left the province, and I've always been proud to work within emergency services, both the integrated fire and ambulance systems, and it's been an honor to uh, to come to Lethbridge back in 2002 and return to my southern home uh, here in Alberta. It, you can imagine what it's like being from Jasper and being out here, and I always said uh, you can't get any more sunshine in southern Alberta, so... Um, with that said, though, obviously you've all been here long, uh, long years of our lives and recognize the weather events and some of the emergencies that we've gone through. Today I just wanted to talk a little bit about something uh, that we experienced last year, um, late in November, and uh, the same conditions actually exist today that we were facing uh, that day of the fire in November, um, minus the winds. So I'll go through my presentation, and there are some opportunities for questions later, and uh, I do have a little reward for uh, for the best question, and that's my opinion on the best question, by the way, so um, be nice. Uh, what we'll just talk about is our emergency preparedness plan, what it is, how it works. We'll t- I'll talk about the events of that day, and then just some of the challenges we had around public communication, some of the things that we encountered, uh, a great deal of learning on our system, how it works. Um, a little bit about our emergency operations center and how, how we activated it that day and how it's activated today in our new building down on 4th uh, on, uh, there. And then we'll talk about our post-incident review. How do we go back through these events? What do we do with the information after we go through these events? Um, and what reassurances that I can give you from our learnings that this will be continuing learning as we go forward. So just uh, for your information, um, each municipality in Alberta that, that has um, 
you could be a county or a, a small rural district or an ID improvement district or a city the size of Lethbridge. You have to have an emergency plan uh, under the Municipal Government Act. And, th and this is our plan. It's, it's got some red writing on it because we're updating it all the time and keeping it as current to the conditions and things that we've learned and to also some of the relationships we have with other municipalities. Um, we also um, have been doing some work in changing our format of how we structure our command, if you will, in the emergency. So we've started to change to something which is called uh, incident command, ICS training. It's a national standard uh, that we're working on getting everyone talking the same language. If you can imagine one table speaking uh, English, one speaking Spanish, and the other speaking Mandarin and not being able to communicate within this room, it would be very difficult during an emergency and likely worse because of the anxiety and, and uh, crisis mode we're operating in. Well, we did open our new emergency operations center last June. Uh, we moved into the building, but we actually commissioned the, that space in October, and we're just installing some new technologies in that room as well. And uh, we've, we've updated the plan to reflect the new incident command infrastructure, um, and we've trained all of our department operations staff in this language that is one common language when we're on an emergency scene. So remember the Slave Lake events back last year, we actually sent some folks up to work in their emergency operations center and the, the way we were able to do that was everyone speaking the same language in the room now. So it's very easy for us to be transplanted into another municipality and operate under their guidelines and their plan because we're all talking the same languages. So just a little bit about the day's, uh, day's events. That Sunday was, uh, I think it was our, uh, was it Grey Cup Day? It was Grey Cup, because I obviously wasn't watching it. I was actually heading down, getting ready to go to Malk River. I had gotten a call um, and said, well, we have a chief on call, an emergency preparedness manager for Lethbridge, 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. I was the spare that day and was getting ready to head south to work with the team down in Milk River with that event. And it was active at the time that, that this occurred. We then got a call, and many of you had saw the smoke that had been rising off into the distance off to the west out on the Blood Reserve. And we noticed we have a fire in the Blood Reserve, and it was a high wind day. So we were getting on ready at the point that fire started on the Blood Reserve. And people were calling already into our, into our offices. At that moment, we had a large commercial structure fire that came in as well, too. So it was about 3.20, we got a call for a large structure fire in the north side and we dispatched the regular uh, industrial response to that and moved a bunch of people into the stations to backfill. Um, what we do when these large events come on, we try to bring in people operationally as fast as we can to make sure we have some depth behind those first crew that go out. We run 127 staffed full-time uh, folks in our department, but we remember there's only 25 on in a day. So we have to re replenish the system in a major emergency. Um, we then actually dispatched our crews up to the edge of the river, uh, Cooley, because we knew that that, that fire would come up to the edge of the, the valley and likely up to the edge of the river and may cross the river. Um, thinking that and hoping that it wouldn't, our worst fears were recognized and the fire did jump the river. And we don't have an exact time because it jumped at different points at different times. It was throwing embers uh, 50 to 100 feet ahead of it. The flames are 30 feet high. And I have some slides which I can show you the conditions at the time. And many of you saw the YouTube pictures and, and great video that we had from the folks that came out um, and took pictures uh, in our way that day. 
Um, and at that moment, I had been on the phone with our uh, counterpart at the county of Lethbridge and said, heads up, we've got this major fire west of the city. Uh, let's get ready. I think it's going to jump the river. And it did. And we then both activated our emergency operations center. So we, the fire chief or the person responsible for the emergency preparedness planning was online with us prior to the fire even getting into the county of Lethbridge. And many, many calls were coming in at this point into our emergency operations center, the public safety communications center that answers the 911 calls. So we were seeing the calls going from what we would say would be a normal uh, per hour call volume of about five jumps to 100 to 120 to 130 calls per hour. And each one of those calls that we take at a dispatcher center takes several seconds to process and we have to make sure that we're talking about the same fire that we do have a record of it so that the caller does re is reassured that we're sending help. So that takes time to process and then that takes time to filter down into our operational response because at this point we have crews on the scene, there's no fire. The fire jumps the river and it becomes a major issue for us. So now we're trying to ramp up even more and further. And our immediate concern was obviously for the life safety of those county residents. With a fire that size approaching into the county of Lethbridge, we needed to do some things to get action and information out to the public. So I'll just share you some photos of the fire and I'll talk a little bit about the photos and some of you may have seen these already. What I have up on the screen there is actually the fire, dis fire area and you can see the red dot off to the west there. That's actually the origin spot of the fire on the blood reserve. So we estimated the ground speed of the fire to be about nine kilometers, roughly an hour. Uh, moves faster or slower depending on the fuel of the fire. We don't see a lot of bare land anymore in, in agriculture. A lot of times you'll see it uh, will leave stubble or they'll leave a portion of the crop in place. So there's always seems to be more fuel available to fires today. So the fire's speed was about nine kilometers an hour and it moved very quickly to the edge of the river. And we think, as I'd mentioned, somewhere around that, that um, that mark about uh, um, 320 or so or later, it jumped the river and we needed to get out some information to the public. The two other circles around that, I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but there's a red sort of a oblong uh, diagram around that and that's the fire's growth. Had the wind not been blowing as strong as it was from the west, that fire may have traveled north and south into some of those subdivisions that are actually in the county. Fortunately for us, it didn't do that. It kept that fire very, very narrow and very tight, which was an added advantage tactically for the crews that were working that fire. Then it's night, so now we're having to deal with darkness and a lot of smoke and the traffic of the folks that came out to look at the fire that uh, weren't involved in it are now involved in the event and they're driving in front of our apparatus and we can't get into the site. The yellow, uh, or what orange, if, if it's not yellow and I'm colorblind, that orange is also the area that would it have extended out to had it been uh, a different wind direction. And that's always in the back of our minds within the emergency operations center and the, and the fire ground commander is taking a look at that and saying if the wind switches in the next few hours, the fire can go north and south. So immediately we are dealing with an evacuation primarily of the county residents first and we're preparing to talk about what it might mean for Lethbridge residents that are on the west side, that we're preparing information for them. 
This is a view looking uh, east from the fire origin. If you look at the very first part of the, uh, the wingtip and just go directly off the wingtip, that's the area of origin where the sweat lodge was, that the embers from the fire ignited it and carried across the blood reserve. Now, there were some homes lost on the blood reserve, and I did have the opportunity to talk to Oscar Cotton, who's the fire chief of the blood reserve, and Oscar had mentioned just the process and the cultural um, understanding of what a, f a sweat lodge was. Um, and this was done by a group of folks who normally don't do a sweat lodge, so um, may not have anticipated the concern for the fire risk um, and may not have saw the risk to themselves at that point in time. So that's a, that's a very large fire, and uh, the fire in the Milk River Ridge was actually larger than this event, um, and they didn't have near the uh, losses of homes. They had lots of fence posts lost and some livestock, but it was limited to... Uh, primarily wildland uh, prairie grass. Now, as I said, nightfall comes, and the crews are out there trying to work, and this is the type of thing you'll see. That's actually the flying brands from the embers moving off of this fire. We had estimated fire ground speed at 9 kilometers an hour, wind speed of, of upwards of 120 to 135 kilometers an hour. didn't matter what you did. You weren't going to put that fire out. You were going to contain it and control it, but you wouldn't put it out. So we brought in heavy equipment initially. We had some folks that showed up. One contractor brought in some heavy equipment, and we were able to use that working with the crews um, from Coaldale, Pitchtribute, Colehurst, and Nobleford um, to work on that fire, and we were able to contain much of it. Uh, fortunately for us, as it approached the edge of the city, we were able to squeeze it down, and it, it got contained by a lack of fuel that there was a land development occurring right just uh, west of the city, and that sort of slowed the fire almost to a stop. Um, and we then went back into the fire zone to get it put out. And you can see that's looking back west now from the, the west edge of the city just off the wingtip there, and that, that brown land is actually the land that's actually cleared. Um, Melcore Developments was moving in with the subdivision development, so the, it basically was, was dirt. We did bring in heavy equipment. We had uh, graders from the county of Lethbridge, graders from the city of Lethbridge, actually on the ground at the site, ready to go, and they actually did some grading. We had one of the local farmers in the region, and the great thing about neighbors were they brought in their cultivator, and they cultivated around this, this fire to remove, remove the fuel and limit the fire spread going north and south. So one of the big challenges, and everybody will, will uh, have some questions around this, is about the public communication. What information were we able to get out? What was the confusion with the information and the challenge for us? And I'll share with you just some of the, some of the pieces right now. So the primary website, if you're using a computer or if you're looking for information and um, getting information from our media stream, radio, television, um, we would use the, the Alberta Emergency Alerting System, and we can activate that now from our Blackberries and our desktops and our computers, but we need the computer, we need to log in, and we need to type in the message, and we have the ability to do that ourselves directly now. And it reads a, basically a text script, and it's an automated voice that reads the text script. You may have heard the test messages recently through the province. So we issued an emergency alert. It came out on the website, but it was confusing and it was overlapping because we had the county involved and we had the city involved. And there was two messages intertw intertwined there where we asked the county residents, you need to evacuate now. You need to remove yourself from the area of danger, and we gave the zone. And it's called a critical alert. And a critical alert is the one that's a threat to your life. So if you hear critical alert, you pay attention. Only a critical alert will interrupt broadcast TV and radio. 
So it'll actually interrupt with the emergency alert toning, and it will give you the emergency alert. An information alert is really just there for your information. So we've got high water in the river bottom. Uh, the river's flowing fairly excessive. Uh, it's going to overflow its banks or it's on the bank. Um, and it's not a threat to life, but it's a safety advisory for someone in a zone. Now, the way it works is I have the ability to activate it for the city of Lethbridge, as do all the chiefs on call or their designates. The other part is it overlaps into the county and vice versa. So working with the County Emergency Operations Center, we asked that the alert be activated through the province. There was some confusion when we first went on to activate it. There were some challenges logging on. We've since established the process and a protocol for that. So that's the alert that was issued. And if you look at it, it says there's a large grass fire burning west of the city of Lethbridge. The County of Lethbridge residents in the area of, of West Highlands and Indian Battle Park, Indian Battle Heights, be prepared to evacuate if requested by local officials. And that was the challenge. The message went out with a piece of information. Two words missing from that. It's residents in the county of Lethbridge that we are really targeting here. Um, the threat to the, to the city of Lethbridge wasn't there at the point we issued this alert. So we were really focusing on the county residents, and that was the primary challenge for us. So that's what happens when you put information in a message that isn't crystal, crystal clear. So the county residents were given a location to evacuate to. Subsequent uh, alerts actually gave them the wrong information of where to go because they were issued by the county of Lethbridge, but the city of Lethbridge set up the reception centers for the evacuees. So the county had said go to the Yates when we were actually set up at um, the Lethbridge Senior Center um, to receive them. So there were some challenges with two different messages going out. Um, prior to the fire even becoming an issue for us in the city, we actually used our um, city communications staff um, who we have on speed dial on our telephones. We, we spoke to them. We said, can you put some information on Twitter, Facebook, and send out a public service advisory to our local media that we have a fire west of the city. The fire department is on scene and we are monitoring it. The moment we started sending out information, we started seeing people coming, coming to the fire. The moment they saw the column of smoke, we had a lot of traffic in the area. So that created a, a really tactically difficult fire for the fire crews, and it created a massive problem for police when it had all that traffic in that zone. And that's why you started to see roads get closed. People were concerned, can I get to my family? I've been over on the east side uh, at, a, at a Grey Cup party. My kids are at home alone and we close the roads. So there was some challenge with, with communicating, and that's why we asked people to plan and prepare. And what are you going to do if you can't get back to your house and you've got your family, your children are at home or your wife's at home alone and she doesn't drive? So you can see by the time of the information, we were getting information out quickly to the public, but I don't follow Twitter and, and, and I don't use Facebook, and uh, I may go on the website twice a day. So if you're not using that medium, how are we getting the information out? Well, we did do public information out to our, our media groups, and we were very pleased with the information that media did. And this is just a snapshot of the multiple pieces of communication. But you can see we sent stuff out early on in the, in the situation as early as we possibly knew what we had. Remembering this fire was so big, so fast, and our speed to get up was, was difficult to do in the time frame that the fire occurred. And just showing you some of the website hits, um, 
at 6 p.m. we saw 16,000 website hits. At 7 p.m. we saw uh, 22,000, uh, 23,000, 22, sorry, I need my glasses on here for this. Um, 22,000 hits on the website for information. Now, we don't put critical information, meaning life threat information on the city's website. We'll put information of the events, put information about what's occurring, what infrastructure we're having challenges with, but we don't put critical information up on our website. That would come out on the emergency alert website. So that's done through the province, so everyone's guaranteed to hear it because it will interrupt TV and media broadcasts. There was information about Twitter. Those of you that follow Twitter, we had in our information was retweeted, so we knew it was accurate. Um, we were monitoring the Twitter site. We had three communications people right next to me in the Emergency Operations Center, and they were monitoring the communications. Lots of misinformation. Lots of information that was tweeted that I just scratched my head, and Chief, uh, um, Chief of Police McKenzie and I were just scratching our heads at, at what the information was that people were, were putting on. It was terrifying to me to think that, that they actually could use the computer to put that type of information out. So with the EOC or activation, I'd mentioned it was a rapid fire, um, and, and activation for the EOC means we actually physically have to dial out the telephone numbers of up to 28 telephone numbers to get people to come in. That means that we've got to bring in the transit director, we've got to bring in Alberta Health Services, and you don't do that in, in five minutes. They're not sitting in their car in the parking lot. They've got to get get home or, or get in their vehicle, drive down to the emergency operations center, and get into the building and activate. So that was one of the things we learned very quickly was a risk to us. Um, the other thing that was also a challenge for us was the communications between the county and the city's emergency operations center. And as, as you had heard, I've been in several different municipalities, but I've never actually done a joint exercise with the county or anyone else. We do one with the airport, but we've never done one as joint emergency operations center. So we were doing that uh, in the hot seat. So we were bringing in a conference call on regularly updating between the two uh, organizations. We know there's a great deal more that we can do there in intermunicipal communications because weather, storms, risks don't stop on the borders of the city. They overlap and weather events occur for both of us. So that's something that has to be worked on very, very tightly. So we recognize that right away, as well as the activation of the emergency warning system. I'm not authorized to activate an emergency warning to the county residents of Lethbridge. Their life might be in danger, but I'm not authorized to access it and activate it. It seems kind of out of order. So we're working through that, making sure the province understands and I'll do the right things for those of you that live in the county. I will do the right thing and activate it because it's all the same infrastructure. So just know that we will do it. But, but by legal authority, I don't have that in the county of Lethbridge. So it's, it's just one of those things that we have to deal with. How's my time? Okay. I'm talking fast. So... Just to close up here, we do something called a post-incident analysis. We do one on the tactical side, which means the fire ground side. The fire ground crews that dealt with the events all link in, and then they come in and do a post-incident review. Every major event, uh, multiple stations, large fires, we bring that together. Everybody gets in the room. We talk about what went well, what didn't, what do we need to tweak, communications, that type of thing. We also did one for the Emergency Operations Center. We had 20 different people, uh, 28 different people in there, uh, six different agencies that are not part of the city in that room, and we need to make sure our communications are working effectively in the Emergency Operations Center. We also had a huge, huge influx of calls into our Public Safety Communications Center, the 911 Center, and there has to be some uh, recognition that 
um, the, the technologies that support that room need to be incredibly robust and solid. And one of the things that we don't get, um, uh, about 10 years ago, we used to be see about 37% of our calls were cellular. Today, it's 52%. Cellular companies do not provide any financial funding for us managing E911 call answer. We get that on the landline, which is your fixed line at home on the copper. Uh, we get that on your VoIP line from Shaw and any of the other providers. Uh, and we do not get any funding from the cellular companies who are collecting billions of dollars of cellular revenue, also charging you for your, your E911 access fee, but they're paying zero to the municipality for operating the E911. 52% of our calls come in on E911. A new telephone system for that room costs $400,000. So I'll leave you with that. Um, we also need to work with the province on our incident command system module. Uh, that we actually use the incident command system that we train in all municipalities across Alberta. So if our event goes on beyond about uh, 24 hours, we start to get pretty thin in our municipal resources of keeping our center up and running. So we should be able to bring, bring in people from Red Deer, Medicine Hat to help us work in our emergency operations center and vice versa because the learning we had by going to Slave Lake and spending four days with them was incredible. And we came home and we tweaked our plan again and we learned some things from that. We talked about things like re-entry plans when you've closed down an entire community for days on end. So we need that provincial-wide system, and the province is stalled, stalled on getting that out and getting that education to everyone. And the last piece is, is one of the parts that I'm hopefully here today is to talk about the public awareness. What do you have in your plan at your household? Have you talked to your family? Have you planned on getting your, your emergency 72-hour kit ready to go? Have you thought about what you need to do? What documents? Are your documents safe? Are they in the right place for you to leave the house immediately? If I told you you had to leave your house and someone's going to lose their home over the lunch hour, you would have to think about what is important to you and plan ahead. And also make a plan to take care of yourself for 72 hours. Don't become part of the burden on the, on the social system or the community during a major disaster. We'll do our best to keep our core infrastructure running. We'll do our best to get water to your house and power and make sure you've got heat in your home with the utilities. But we can't make sure you've got supper on the table or you've got food to feed your family. You need to think about that in your emergency preparedness planning. So May is uh, Emergency Planning Preparedness Month, and you'll see us out talking in the media about the kits. And just tell people, you know, even if you put a third of your kit together this year and you do a little bit every year, um, it's not such a burden on your, on your financial status. But it is something that's your responsibility, and we ask that people take the time to do that. So, And that's the end of my... Oh. Uh, that's just a, a copy of everybody that was in the room for our, our EOC debrief, um, His Worship, all the lead agencies that come in, Alberta Health Services were there, um, and everybody that touched uh, part of that table in that room comes back, does a debrief, and then we take the notes, and I'm reporting action back to, our, uh, to my director and uh, the, uh, the uh, man senior management team of the city of Lethbridge. I'm responsible to make sure each one of those items that we learn through uh, our events gets addressed, and or we plan for a method to address that over time. Some of them cost money. Some of them mean that we are adding some new technologies, as I mentioned earlier. We're adding an automated dial-out system, so it's just one button, and I can call 28 phone numbers in, in five minutes. That type of thing is the stuff that we're working on and tweaking right now. So thanks very much, and uh, 